Today's program is brought to you by Thurman Maple Days. Celebrate flowing of sap in the Adirondacks, self-guiding to seven sites for talks, tours, tastes, and old-fashioned friendliness. For more information, visit ThurmanMapleDays.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew, where we serve a weekly menu of industry commentary based on what the market has to offer. I'm Andrew Friedman from Tokeland.com. I'm Jimmy Bradley from The Red Cat. This week, Jimmy, we're going to be talking about cookbooks, specifically chef cookbooks, more specifically chef cookbooks that tackle the food of other countries and regions. And we've got two great guests here. Uh, We have Sarah Jenkins and Alex Raj, who we'll introduce in a little more detail in just a minute. Um, before we do that, um, first of all, in, in the chef world, obviously, since our last show, there was a big loss. Sam Bell um, from Blackberry Farm died very tragically about a week ago. Uh, we, neither of us really knew Sam, but obviously knew of him and knew people who were incredibly fond of him. Um, so we just sort of wanted to offer our condolences uh, on his loss. Um, the other um, thing before we get to our main topic, which happened quite spontaneously, is we want to spend a second talking about this new film, King George. Uh, and the backstory and the reason it's spontaneous is I don't live in New York City anymore. I live just north of the city, and I was out last night. I ended up crashing at my co-host's uh, apartment, and we ended up watching King George uh, uh, on uh, on demand, streaming on demand, and it's a documentary about sort of the last, well, it's the last years and then the last days of Lebec Fenn, uh, George Perrier's restaurant uh, in uh, Philadelphia, which had a multi-decade run. Uh, just opened and very limited release theatrically last Friday. Um, it is available on video on demand. And what did we think, Jimmy? What did you think of it? Oh, you know, I mean, first. I grew up in Philadelphia, and I, I, I cooked right down the street from him, so I knew of him. I knew him. I used to, after work, drink with his staff every night, you know? And, uh, I mean, just in general, what an amazing man. And that film, it reminded me of a line in a song. Some of it's magic, some of it's tragic, you know? It was it was both inspirational and sad. And uh, But, you know, for me, it was an enjoyable watch. Yeah, I mean, for me, what was interesting was I re- I made remember so distinctly. I think maybe the first time I ever went to the James Beard Awards, he either got outstanding restaurant or or um, uh, outstanding chef. I forget the award and came up and he didn't get teary or anything, but talked about uh, thanked his daughter for understanding that he was never around. And um, you know, in this movie, you really do see and get this feeling of somebody who really only knows the kitchen and really is only happy in the kitchen, working these incredibly long hours uh, up until a fairly advanced age. I mean, amazing stamina and energy and all that. Um, uh, and that was interesting to me. I mean, it made me, like you said, it made, did make me a little sad. I really thought well, this person doesn't really want to be or know how to be anywhere else. It's like he never changed, and that usually doesn't take place in life. You know? Right, right. Uh, I, I don't know if I ever told you this, but when I when I, wor- I worked at Delulo right down the street from him, and we did this retirement dinner for C- Craig Claiborne, and we raised money for scholarships for the CIA, and I was the only one in both kitchens who never attended school. And the the culinary school. So I uh, asked my chef. I said, "Could I get one of these?" And then he said, "You got to go talk to George." And it was just amazingly supportive. And you know, the money that was raised at the dinner we cooked went for scholarships. And George was really, really amazingly supportive. And I, I barely knew him. You know, this is this was in the eighties. Yeah. I mean, the other thing about the movie for me, and it's kind of a thing I talked about a little on my blog last year when I thought Burnt was going to be a good movie, um, <laughs> and I was so optimistic about it. I actually haven't seen You it. really were optimistic. It's the, worst, it's the worst movie I didn't see last year. But um, what I was going to say just briefly, and then we'll get to our cookbook topic, is, um, you know, this movie, again, to me, just demonstrates there's something about kitchens, as with certain other arenas, that I think are really best and maybe only capturable in a documentary. You could take scenes from this movie. There's a long sequence where 
um, he's and it's a short film. It's only about seventy five minutes long. Yeah. But there's a sequence where he has to remake a galette. Uh, one of the co- they want to eighty six. His team wants to eighty six it. Yeah, this cook burnt the galette. Yeah, and the, the team says we're going to eighty six it, and he's like, I never eighty six anything. And over he, my dead, body, yeah, over my says. dead body. And he runs downstairs and he makes a dough and he puts it in the. It's like amazing, right? And then he runs up, and then this woman named Hillary, who he's been parading through the whole movie. Has uh, comes up to him at the end of service and gives him a card, and she'd made no, no. him. He's washing dishes in the dish station right. after making the galettes, and right. she doesn't know how to approach him, so she waits for him to run a rack, and then right. she taps him on the shoulder. Right, and she's made him a card, and you find out it's his birthday. So this is how he spent his birthday at age seventy, whatever. And here's the thing, though: it's in the documentary, it's really touching. If you took a transcript of that sequence and had actors act it out. It would seem the the French chef, which seems like a stereotype. Right. The card would just seem really treak, you know, just really sentimental and lame and all that. But in that, you know, captured that way, it's this really amazing moment uh, that Erica Franker, the filmmaker, caught. Maybe we should try to get her on the it's show. Real, uh, real reality TV. Yeah. Real yeah. reality. It's very real. So idea. we're recommending it, right? We think people should see it. Yeah, I mean, one of the things was that that I lauded the most in it is, you know, he he never changed. Like, this is how we do it, and this is how it gets done, and I just have the most amount of respect for that ever, because really, what we do is about consistency. It's not about always what's next. It's about making the same thing a thousand times and right. making it great. But then my takeaway is, you got to roll with the times, you know, and he might have been a little slow in, you know, some of the food and the decor and, and adapting to the change that his guests were showing him, you know, and, right. and that was... That was, to me, the kind of the takeaway of it is, you know, you are as only as good as the last thing you did, but you have to keep pushing what that is and and develop what it's going to be next. Right. Uh, The one other thing I'll mention is, again, in terms of what it captures, um, some of the kitchen sequences and the way the camera follows people through the kitchen and these little hallways and doorways and downstairs. You know, I said to you at one point as we're sitting there at whatever, one in the morning last night watching this thing, you know, I said this is like watching Das Boot. You know, I feel like I'm in a submarine. Um, it's, it's, it's worth seeing. Um, so all of that said, we're going to move on to our topic today. Um, you know, we just thought, and the, the idea kind of first hit us because um, uh, Alex's book, um, the Basque book, is coming out next month. Uh, and it gave us this idea of maybe talking about, um, you know, and, and mostly directed toward, our, you know, chefs and cooks out there. You know, how does one uh, go about uh, conceiving a book, selling a book, writing a book, um, and then successfully publishing, i.e. promoting uh, a book. Um, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, here with us, we have Sarah Jenkins, who is the chef and co-owner of Porchetta and Porcena in New York City, author of Olives and Oranges, and more recently with her mom, Nancy Harmon Jenkins, of The Four Seasons of Pasta. Uh, and Sarah also did something very cool a couple of years ago, which was the New Italian Pantry app, um, which we'll talk to in the context of this conversation. Uh, and again, we have Alex Raj here. Alex is chef partner with her husband, Eder Montero, of Chiquito, El Quinto Pino, and Lavara in New York City. And we're talking about New York City broadly, meaning including Brooklyn. Uh, and author uh, also uh, with editor of the forthcoming book, The Basque Book, which has the great subtitle, A Love Letter and Recipes from the Kitchen of Chiquito, which is due out April 19th from 10 Speed Press. Um, so having said all that, you know, I'd love to ask both of you, and we'll start maybe with you, Alex. You know, when I go sit down to talk to someone about maybe collaborating, the first question I always have is, why do you want to write a cookbook? Um, and I think it's a really big question for chefs. There's a lot of different reasons people have for doing cookbooks. Um, when you first decided to do one, what was, just I'll put it out there in the most broad sense, what was, why'd you want to do it? Well, the first cookbook I, I wanted to write, um, I had this idea that it would be um, a tapas book because uh, that was the first restaurant uh, that uh, I opened with my husband and I think it really uh, sort of established. I, I, my, my sort of goal um, living in sort of Spanish food um, was to sort of right the wrongs. I felt like uh, um, set a new standard for Spanish cuisine in New York, and I think it turned out to be sort of nationally, like just sort of reframe the conversation about Spanish food using tapas, which is such a um, 
amazing national custom to talk about regional cooking. And um, and so I thought that my first book would be the topless book, but then I was a little slow going because I had a day job which and a night job. Right. And all day, all night job. And, um, and, and a lot of people wrote the book and they didn't write the book. They, they took the title that I wanted to have, but they didn't write the book I wanted to write. And I didn't want to, I didn't feel like I could write those, rewrite those wrongs again. So um, just as in life, we wanted to go from general to specific and open up a Basque restaurant or a Catalan restaurant. Um, Basque being the first one because my husband's Basque. And, uh, right. Um, I thought it was better to, to move on and write that Basque book and establish not only our authority over the subject, but... Um, just to make sure that that somebody else didn't go and write a Basque book with a bunch of Catalan recipes in it, because that's what is in all these Basque restaurants these days. Um, so I wanted to write that book uh, to make sure that it was given the respect and um, the authenticity and authority it, I thought it deserved, because I feel strongly about this kind of stuff. And that's it. And... Uh Sarah, for you, and I guess I would ask, you know, why you wanted to do, if you can think back to it, why you wanted to do your first book, which was several years ago now, and then, you know, you went a fair number of years between books, and then what made you want to jump in and do a second one? Um, The original book, a friend of mine who's a writer approached me and said, would you be interested? And I said, sure. And we started exploring it, and we made a book. This is Um, Mindy Fox? Yeah. And... um, you know, somebody once said to me, the reason you really want to do a book is it's kind of a record of what you do, right? And it's a historic, maybe it's even a historical record in some ways, um, where you were in a moment. It's a really physical thing. Uh, then I guess I opened two places and I had a kid and I didn't have a whole lot of time. And I'm not really, um, I mean, my mother's a cookbook author. I'm a cook, right? Um, but we have this really great agent and we always had the idea of doing something together, bringing kind of her skills and my skills together. Um, the Four Seasons of Pasta really evolved out of some things that we'd been working on. Um, I still think, actually, that there's ultimately a bigger book that we could write about our shared experiences um, right. growing up around food and right. <clears throat> in the Mediterranean and all of that. Um, but this is the book that we, you know, our agent was really enthused about it. Um, we sold it. And there you have it. I mean, that's not as romantic as I wanted yeah. to stand up no. for the cuisine. But, I think it's really romantic. Um, <laughs> no, um, you did that with you know. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's well, again, I think it's interesting. Can you maybe also talk about, I mean, pick either of them if, if one of them is maybe a more interesting answer than the other. But how from, you know, first inception, like mm-hmm. you mentioned, Mindy Fox said something, to, like, to, to either what got submitted to publishers that you might sell or the book that you ended up turning in at the end of the writing process. Uh, did, did either of those books evolve for you over time from what you first had in your mind to something else? Well, um, I have an artist friend, an English artist friend, who's kind of a typographer, and he's very interested in food. And he's done some really cool books, I think. They're not mes- maybe necessarily the greatest um, recipe books, but they wind up with cutouts and uh, you know mock receipts, and they look like a real scrapbook. Um, and that was the book I really wanted to write. I wanted to write something completely crazy. And both my agent and Mindy dialed me back in. And, you know, one of their points also was you're going to put all this energy and effort into this book. You want something ultimately that stands the test of time, that, that um, people will buy, that, that is out there. Like, it's great. Okay, we can make like an artsy coffee table book and sell 10. Um, or we can make a book that maybe people can really find useful. Right. Um, so, uh you know, it's interesting from the standpoint of uh, writing a book. You've alluded, you both have alluded to the time it takes, and that right. you're, you know, you're actually cooks and chefs, and not not writers first and foremost. Right. You know, I, I, it's funny to me because I've um, been lucky enough to do a lot of collaborations, and you know, when I sometimes sit down and have a coffee with a young writer, and they said. You know, how have you done so many books? And I said, because I don't let the chef get away. Because you sit down with any chef and they'll go, inevitably, they will say, you know, this is not the best time for me. But And I always stop them and say, there's never going to be a good time for you. Maybe if you're unemployed, right. that would be a, an <laughs> optimal time. Otherwise, you may as well just pick the nine months or year and jump in. But could you just talk about 
again, for people who are listening who maybe you're thinking about it or are just curious, what, what kind of a time commitment goes into writing uh, you know, a, a decent-sized cookbook? Um, a lot. I mean, again, I was kind of fortunate with my mother in that she has so much experience with this, sure. and there's a lot of stuff that she could kind of bang out. Mindy and I actually took a long time to write the book, and we... A long time being... I think about four years, wow. really. Because... Originally, you know, we signed the contract and we had a certain deadline, and then they kind of came back to us, could you amp up that deadline? No, we couldn't. And so then we had a lot more time to do it. Um, and it was sort of like I would be employed and I would do I, – I would be employed and Mindy would not be employed and she'd be doing work on it. And then I would be unemployed and she would be employed and I would be doing work on it. So um, I wouldn't necessarily do it that way again. I would I – would, I don't think I would want to stretch it out that long. Sure. Um, I'd, and I'd rather just kind of take the space and commit to it and push through it, which, in fact, the Four Seasons of Pasta with my mother, we had a very, very tight deadline. It was, in fact, she bitched the whole time about the ridiculous turnaround. But well, And even my agent said, are you sure you don't want more time doing this? And I just felt like, what's more time going to get me? It's going to get me more procrastination. Right. Um, Picking so. it up and putting it down <laughs> sometimes is it the easiest <laughs> right, way. Right, right, right. I, I, I wanted to ask you, is there... Or was there a, 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 a least favorite part in the process? Or, or if not, can you tell us what, what your favorite part of the process was? Well, I mean, I hate testing recipes, right? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I mean, I like to pull a bunch of ingredients onto the table and futz around. And uh, again, with my mother, it was kind of easier. She farmed it out. She has a lot more time. She's got a great kitchen up in Maine uh, that, so that she could – I could give her rough drafts or rough outlines, and then she could futz about with testing it. Mindy was um, really strict with me. <laughs> I mean, there were things we had to measure. And I remember arguing about um, measuring lemon juice. You know, I was like, what is wrong with cut a lemon and squeeze half a lemon? <laughs> She's like, no, you have to measure it. And – that was it's it's a struggle because I'm trying to give people the ability to cook freely, right? Does it really matter whether you get a quarter cup of lemon juice or a quarter cup and a teaspoon of right, lemon a juice? A little more intuitive, right? But her point was, you're sending this recipe out there, and I've heard this from other food editors as well. Um, and you don't know who these people are, and they don't necessarily know your food, and you're trying to give them the information so that they can recreate it as closely. I don't think you can ever recreate off a recipe exactly what somebody yeah somebody i mean does. one of my famous lines in it and favorite lines of any cookbook is at the beginning of the french laundry cookbook uh keller writes or keller and woman i should probably say right um you know that you uh a recipe has no soul right you bring that to the right. cooking you're right. going to do things that are going to make it yours right um um do you ever um you know because you, you both have restaurants um guests ever stop you in the dining room or call you on the telephone and say, I have your book and I want to talk to you about it? Um, I've had people ask me for recipes and sometimes they get me at a good time and I've got time and I'll sit there and talk them through it. I had this one woman, I talked her through it and then she called up a few weeks later, well, it didn't work, you know. Then she showed up at a cooking class, it's still not working. I'm like, lady, you know, like, you I don't know, do I'm a, right, I'm a skilled professional, you're not, I don't know what the problem is here. Right. Like, I'll just come over and fingers. do it for you. Right. How about you, um, Alex? Um, well, I have lots of people ask us, you know, how uh, we achieve certain things, but one of the, I, you know, when we were talking about why I write the Basque book, um, one of the real reasons I also wanted to um, write the Basque book specifically, um, even though the recipes are deeply personal, which is why we have the subtitle, because even though they're really authentic, we're looking at them through like our personal experience and sort of um, I, I always I called it in the book, like sort of finding a home in a cuisine that's not your own. Um, but um, I think um, the the way that the Basque people approach their cuisine is um, constantly sort of, um, they're not afraid to like, as with everything in life in the Basque world, um, they're not afraid to like take new things in, incorporate new things and innovate, but they still have the style that is very much, you know, their own. And I feel the same way sort of as a cook. And I wanted people to be able to like look at the Basque style, like to look at the same ingredients that they look at every day sort of sideways. And I felt like it would naturally make people better cooks. 
that there's something about the fast cuisine that makes you if you give yourself to it a better cook like it it's so minimalist that you have the details are important you have to pay attention you become very intimate with a very like finite number of ingredients and you repeat tasks all the time so you become expert but you have to invest in in the book and you have to invest in the ingredients you know and over and over again and then it will become yours and and you'll be able to like impact it. Yeah, some of that minimalist stuff is by far the hardest, uh, the hardest thing to master and conquer. Andrew and I were talking uh, uh, about a week or two ago about it, and my point was, you know, all these things that we have to play around with in the kitchen. Just build a fire and let me see you cook on that thing, and then we'll see where we're going to take it next. You know, Andrew. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm curious because this came up a little bit uh, when you were talking a moment ago, Sarah, and then. Uh, with Alex, I'd love to know, and I'd love to know when we get back to you, Sarah, in a minute, if you think this has changed between the two books you did. But when you went about uh, trying to sell this project, Alex, right? Um, you know, when you go talk to book editors very often, especially when you're dealing with a cuisine that might require you to procure as a home cook things that you can't get at, you know, the local Grand Union or Stop and Shop or whatever your local Piggly Wiggly or whatever your local market is. Um, it's my belief, just kind of observing things and looking at what's come out, that publishers have become a little more open to the fact that people might have to hop on the internet to order something, that they might need to go to a certain specialty shop. Was this any kind of obstacle for you in the selling of your book? And in the writing of the book, did you have to make certain concessions offering, you know, substitutions for things that were more sort of everyday American than something you might have to go to, say, a certain website or a certain part of town to get your hands on? Can I take this question really quickly? Because it really excites me. And I, I'm pretty sure that Sarah and I are totally on, on part on this. One of the things that is so fun and exciting about making a cuisine where all the ingredients aren't available is the choices that you make in the substitutions and how you hack ingredients that you don't have access to. That's what makes the cuisine personal. That's where you become inventive or innovative. And so I didn't feel like I had to make compromises for the book. I feel like I had actually been making those they're not compromised. They're choices, like, all the way along so that the food would be uncompromised. And what's frustrating to me now is that all of a sudden you can just get espalette paste or get all these things that I have had to invent along the way. And what I've found is that the inventions that we've made are better and cheaper often. So, like, we make tomate frito. Now you can buy tomate frito in a can just like you can and tomate frito. Just like your grandma does in the Basque country. Tomate frito is. It's a, it's a sort of, a, you know, one of those like sort of base ingredients like a sofrito, but with only tomato and onion. But in the Basque country, it has a ton of sugar in it. And, and if I so were. So you were it, making your own rather than. We were making our importing own. Importing this thing that would just be. Right. And now because we've made the cuisine accessible, the ingredients are coming after the fact, and they're, they're not always the best choice. How much of what you're describing, though, came from you and you're wanting to do that? And how much did a, did a publisher, like when you were going about selling the book, did the question come up, well, how easy is it for people to make this stuff or to get these things? Did that come up or was that? I think it comes up, but it's more in the complexity of the recipe. I mean, I found it very, like, you know, that's the thing I didn't know about putting together a cookbook. Like, in my mind, I thought that we would have a section that had all of these sort of baseline preparations right? Um, in the back of the book or like the front larger of the book. Or or, kind yeah. Of, yeah, and they really want everything that you need for one recipe in a recipe. At least that's the sort of the 10-speed style guide thing. Right. Because they think people are less likely to make it if they have to make a sub-recipe. I like, I'm a, a big fan of like the sub recipe because I find that the sub recipe usually inspires me to make something else. Right, they're building blocks. Um, yeah. Yeah, right. And, and if so you have, like, leftovers I think it's of like stuff, it's you great. have to, I don't, you have to, um, uh, I guess, put yourself in someone else's kitchen and figure out how they want to use your book. You want the book to be as flexible as possible and still convey all the things that you want it to do. Like, I wanted to write a generous cookbook where people would then own that cuisine and play you know like truly not just make fast food out right. of it 
because I, I choose to be a best cook, but I could cook in lots of different languages. Uh, you know? Just saying play, that's great yeah. because, you know, a lot of times people read recipes and they just want to follow the recipe and just feed themselves. And it takes a little bit of the interest and the fun out of it. And the more you have fun doing it and the more interesting it is to you, the more you're going to explore. And, and not many people speak about it in that sense. I think there's a lot of um, what I like to think of as trophy cooks out there. <laughs> um, people who have become fascinated and intrigued with food, maybe didn't grow up with it. It's like they want to they recreate. Uh, well, the big example for me that is every year on the Internet when everybody's running around trying to make a bouche de Noël for Christmas, right? And I'm looking at them like... French people don't make bouche de Noël for Christmas. They go to the skilled pastry guy in the skilled pastry shop, and they buy... Like, there's a certain amount of things that everybody should be able to do and feed themselves. Like, you should be able to make a salad and make yourself some simple food at home. And and then there's other stuff that you should leave people, you know, skilled professionals to make, but there doesn't always seem to be that much of a... It's like the Instagram culture, right? I'm going to make this. I'm going to photograph it. I'm going to show it off. Look how technically skilled I am, how magnificent I am. But they're, they don't have the comfortableness with the skill set to start to riff and play, which is where I think you really know how to cook and where right. you're really enjoying it. Um, and it's a hard thing. You know, that's, again, what I really tried to convey in my cookbooks. But... Um, you know, then I get into arguments about whether it's a quarter cup of lemon juice or it's right, exactly. <laughs> the juice of half a lemon, you yeah. know. Um, Thank you. Okay, we'll pick up on all this in just a minute. Uh, we are talking with Chef Sarah Jenkins and Alex Raj about cookbooks and chef cookbooks, and we're going to pick up the conversation when the front burner with Jimmy and Andrew returns. We'll be right back. Today's program is brought to you by Thurman Maple Days. Celebrate flowing of sap in the Adirondacks, self-guiding to seven sites for talks, tours, tastes, and old-fashioned friendliness. Maple syrup lovers unite. How was maple syrup made 100 years ago? What are the current practices? What are sugar shacks? Visit Thurman County and go on the maple syrup tour of a lifetime for three glorious weekends to celebrate the start of spring and the end of cabin fever. ThurmanMapleDays.com has all the information you need. Watch sap being gathered and boiled and see how a certified tree farm makes maximum use of the wood from maple and other trees. Enjoy a whole day of fun activities, demonstrations, sampling, and shopping for delectable goodies, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. each day. Like pancakes? Of course you like pancakes. Pancake breakfast at Valley Road Maple Farm is available each day, beginning at 9 a.m. and running until 1 p.m., so you won't have to miss a minute of tour time. If you can already taste the maple syrup, visit ThurmanMapleDays.com to find out more. Welcome back to the Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew. Uh, you caught us uh, mid-conversation, uh, uh, and here we go. Uh, so... Uh, Sarah, let's talk for a minute about your um, app that you did, uh, which was the new Italian pantry. Um, can you just talk a little bit about what made you want to do that and also how you might um, compare the process and whatever satisfaction you took from doing that to doing cookbooks? Well, the app was honestly incredibly much simpler. Um, I mean, I worked with a bunch of people on it, and basically all I really did is cook some food and have them shoot it. Um, and I worked with uh, Nick Fauchald on it of Short Stacked, yep. and he kind of, he really took all the recipes and made them work. Um, I wanted to do the app because, uh, you know, I always go back and I go back to this thing about, you know, it's pantry basics, right? If you have pantry basics, then you can cook anything. Um, you know, you talk about desert island food. Like, for me, it's pasta, olive oil, garlic. So now I know that I can eat. Like, the wolf is not going to, you know, come in the door. 
Um, and I wanted to kind of transmit that knowledge. I mean, we're talking about, you know, it's like, okay, I can give you a recipe for making lentil soup, but I want you to understand that you can make lentil soup 18 different ways. And if you have a bag of lentils and some anchovies and some garlic and a few other things, maybe you picked up a pork shank at the market. Maybe you picked up a, some clams. Um, all of those can go together. And we did the app at a time when we were really talking about how publishing is, you know, in the dump and, um, you know, it's not happening. And, oh, my God, all these people are sort of freaking out about, you know, what's going to happen to the written world. And somebody said to me, he said, it's not that the written word is going away. It's that the way that information is transmitted and held um, is changing. Right. Uh, people seem to be more into actual books again now. It's like we sort of started to come back towards a reason. Everybody likes to hold a book, Right. Um, I still don't think apps and computers are going anywhere. Um, right. Well, it seems, it's interesting. I feel like children's books mm -hmm. and food books are two things that people really want to have this tactile relationship with. Um, and, you know, you said, Sarah, when we started talking, this idea of sort of memorializing what you're doing or what you're doing at a particular moment of to in time. Mm -hmm. um, it is an interesting question. You know, what you two do, or you three, including my co-host here, what you do on a daily basis is very transitory. I mean, it doesn't you you cook it, people eat it, and then it's it's literally gone. I mean, right. it is literally gone. And cookbooks do kind of bring a permanence of some kind to either a repertoire or what you're doing at a given time. Right. And I'm sure all of us go and dig into old cookbooks and search your old cookbooks for resources. I look at cookbooks all the time. They might be a really awful cookbook printed in some country where most of everything is really bad, but there'll be one great idea in there. Right. Um, I buy a lot of used cookbooks, uh -huh. and one of my favorite parts about it is the uh, the notes and the margins. Right. You know, right. so like first we don't have computers in our kitchens usually. So then, what are you going to do? Get a recipe, print it out. So let's say you make some notes on that. So then you're going to put it in a book <laughs> and have it in your kitchen. Right. So buy right. the book. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know, when we set out, Andrew and I set out to to do the Red Cat book. I was like, I just want it this thing where people will use it you know and i don't want it on the coffee table i want it right. dirty in the kitchen right. nothing right. makes me sadder than when i go to someone's house they have a book that i co-wrote and it's immaculate and it's right. like yeah. in the back bedroom somewhere it's, or it, it's just kitchen. immaculate there's no grease on it there's no it's not kind of uh it doesn't automatically open to one place right. that people have been to right. i mean i might have learned it from my dad but you know at his house he had the books in the kitchen and then he had this little teeny stand that was like maybe an inch or two off the counter in case water spilled that wouldn't go on the book and then he had a piece of glass that he would put over the book <laughs> so the splatter didn't get all over it and then he would move the glass and write and you know not really changing recipes but you, you again it's an intuitive thing so if we say use a quarter cup of this and and it's for four people and you want to make it for 16 people chances are you're not using a cup chances are you're using a little less than a cup or a little more than a cup and that's what i mean about notes and the margins you know not setting out to change a recipe, but understanding that recipes are suggestions. Recipes work for us because we've spent our whole career making them work for us. If you if you think it can just work for you once without trying to understand it, you might not get the most out of it. But if you use it as a template and a suggestion, and then you, you know, as Alex so greatly suggested, aren't afraid to play with it, you're really going to be happy with the results. I think the big battle often happens with the copy editors. Oh, yeah. Because... Um, you Too know, literal. Yes. Well, they want to know how long does it take to saute these onions from here to there. Well, that kind of depends. What burner are you using? Where are you cooking? Yeah, everything it? How needs thick definition your... these days. Right. And, um, you know, one of the big things writing the pasta book, so there's a standard in writing pasta recipes where you start to cook the pasta and then you make the sauce, which to me is so... Um, ass backwards. You know, your pasta, when it's done, is done. It needs to go into the sauce and it needs to get to the table. Your sauce, it could wait a little bit. You could make it and reheat it. You could hold it for five minutes. Yeah. Um, I'm always like, you got to make the sauce it's first. It's like making the eggs before the bacon. Yeah. Like, what kind of suggestion is that? Right. But that was something I had to, like, argue about. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it's it. That's a whole other. We could do a whole show on copy editor. <laughs> I mean, there's. I've had great experiences and and not great. And the funny thing is, uh, copy editors for people who are listening, you have your editor who's the person who acquired the book, who kind of you go through the main process with, and they help you kind of shape it in a broad sense. And then the copy editors comb through it and make sure you adhere to certain stylistic rules that the grammar's consistent, that everything and. Um, and you tend never to meet those people, right? You know, you oh, or amazing people though. Yeah, yeah, but you tend not to meet them. Their notes come are funneled through your editor, right? And uh, used to be you would get a, a manuscript back that was covered in post-it notes, and now it's usually done with tr- changes being tracked on a Word document. But you never meet these people, and you do very oftentimes have almost this like cop movie, you know, partner. You know, right. love hate relationship <laughs> right. that's completely virtual. And right. You don't even know their name, right? You know, I, yeah. We had apparently the same one um, as uh, the Zuni cookbook, which made me so happy because I was like, I love that book. Like this woman's gonna be amazing, and and uh, she was hilarious. Like the notes she would write to me, she'd be like, "Stop acting like it's easy," because. It's not. Like, you know, like, <laughs> right. And I was like, like when can I meet you? Right, you're my life you know, coach. I was like, I was like, I'm like a stalker. Like. Right. But it's similar to the restaurants in the sense that, you know, attention to detail is the name of the game. And, you know, you got to respect what they're doing and just the, 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 the detail that they that they look at and, and subject you to. Right. Well, this, right. this all this brings up a, uh, an interesting topic, which we were actually it's the thing we were sort of laughing about when we came back from the break. And Alex, let's maybe talk to you about this. You know, I think what those copy editors are with always the best of intentions trying to do is make your book usable as people see it to an audience and you know it's funny there's there's a couple of books that I think among cooks are very well like you know years ago Pina Luongo wrote a book called Tuscan in the Kitchen one which of my favorites <laughs> has no cooking times almost has no, no quantities yeah no quantities right uh, uh, sometimes not even it doesn't indicate high low medium heat it's the way you cook in Italy mm-hmm. uh, you know Gabrielle Hamilton wrote a book that I love the prune book last year which is done almost like a kitchen binder and a lot of critics you know wrote uh, uh, you know the instructions on this are not so clear and I was like that's the whole point she wants you to sort of make it once it's written as though she's talking to a cook sort of sending someone off to a station to make something and you're going to maybe not get it perfect the first time but then you will and it'll also be imbued with sort of what you bring to it um, but those, it's very rare that someone is able to do a book in that style in this country right yeah. and this is what I wanted to ask about Alex did you get a sense when you were selling the book that that the publishing world, whether or not it was the 10 speed who ultimately bought the book or just people maybe you were talking to, have an image of the typical American cookbook user or home cook in terms of a level of sophistication that they might have around cooking? I, one of the reasons I really wanted 10 speed to buy my book, I'm really glad that they did, is because I, I had this sense that they were building a collection, like in now, in the moment, of books that I liked and that yeah. I thought um, uh, reflected sort of the category of cookbooks that I wanted to be considered and not so precious and beautiful that nobody would use it. Um, sort of the right size that it wasn't like you were like lugging this like coffee table book right um, into the kitchen where you would want to protect it kind of so I I think they were on board with what we were doing and we were on board with what they were doing to, to say that there were like no compromises or like no back and forth I mean there were and 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 there are and there are things that you like you know you fight for and things that you just you you fight as hard as you can and you don't get and then um, then but then there's so much of the other side too where I felt like there was a generosity on the editor side and on the design side um, that you know I believe that they know what they're doing the reason that I like the books I mean I'm not a book publisher and I'm not even you know a writer professionally and um, and so I I wanted to also trust that we were going to make you know the kind of book that I would want to read. I, yeah. I hold cookbooks in such high regard. I, I love them. Um, I grew up with them, and I wanted. I was hoping that you know somebody would be like sentimentally one day attached to this book. Besides my children, who I totally wrote it for. But yeah, yeah. How about you, Sarah? Did you uh, ever you know in in the years? Do you, I guess I would ask the question. Do you feel like this this uh, perception? 
has you know I my experience has been you'll go to a uh, you know whatever you want to call it a sales meeting or a pitch meeting when you're trying to sell a book and you'll meet with an interested editor. And maybe they'll leaf through some sample recipes and they'll say something like, um, well, how so- there's always some town they pick, you know, in the mid. How's someone in Kalamazoo going to put their hands on X? You know, it, it always comes off as this kind of imagined person out there who, like, literally is, like, brain, right. like brain dead, but still trying to cook. <laughs> well, I mean, it's fascinating. You know, I spent um, a fair amount of time testing recipes for my mom's cookbooks 20 years ago. And... The changes in access to ingredients is just phenomenal. I think when she wrote her Tuscan book or the first Mediterranean diet, we had access to button mushrooms and portobellos, and that was it. And the right. fact that today there's such an, you know, it has opened up stuff. I always struggle, you know, I look at old Diana Kennedy cookbooks, and again, they're written for that person in Boise, Idaho, who there are no Mexicans anywhere, and they have no idea how to access any of this food. And you, they wind up, those recipes, they don't last because now today we have access to all those ingredients, um, you know, whether it's online or whether it's because you live in a big urban environment. Uh, and you're left wondering, you look at those recipes, well, what was it really, you know, meant to be? Like, that's great that we're subbing cottage cheese here, but now that I don't have to do that anymore. Right. Um, I had a big, not a big fight, but we had a discussion about Pimenton d'Espelette, which I love and I used in the Olives and Orange book a lot. And I remember my editor, Rox Martin, saying, and this was, I just thought it was hilarious. She said, now, I don't know. Maybe Pimenton d'Espelette is going to be the next cilantro. And I realized that, you know, 30 years ago, you couldn't put cilantro in a cookbook because nobody knew what it was and nobody could get it in sure. Boise, Idaho. Yeah. Um, and then I think, you know, okay, so we're so busy catering to that person in Boise, Idaho, but what about that other person who's actually really skilled and sophisticated and lives in an urban market and had access to cilantro 35 years ago? Like, we got to take care of them, too, right? Yeah. Was there somebody that you pictured in your mind when you're, you know, are you writing the book like Alex suggested? She, you know, she said she wrote the book for her children, but, you know, for you, were you specifically thinking of a person or a type of person or a group of people? Well, I guess, you know, my one of my shticks is always like I'm a home cook who wound up in a professional situation, and that's what I do. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not interested in high-tech cooking. I'm interested in trying to replicate what my farm neighbor in Italy did 40 years ago. Um, and uh, so I guess that's who my book is targeted towards, is like good home cooks who have an interest in learning something, figuring out how to make something, understanding pantry basics, how that helps them. Yeah. Um, much more than than this is the authentic way that we make cacio e pepe. Sure, sure. Right? For me, I, I, I used to just think of the customers of the restaurant, you know, right. because they're really sampling a lot of the food. You know, you, you both do books from, you know, inspired, inspired by uh, other cuisines of other nations, but right. you do them in a town, in a place, in a time right. in America. So there's a, a certain sensibility that probably gets adjusted. Well, when I actually did olives and oranges, I didn't really, I didn't really have a restaurant. I mean, I was working in a place, I think, and then I wasn't, and then I sold the book, and I was kind of back and forth. And the book wound up actually coming out uh, right when I opened Porchetta. Did um, you find it, you know, with the second book? Did you find it easier if you had a kitchen and you were working, or or, um, or was it easier when you had more time to spend on it? No, because I'm a big like test at home, not in the kitchen. Got it. Um, so and. I don't know if it was easier or more or more time. <laughs> well, four years is a long time. So. <laughs> right. uh, we're Can getting, I? Oh, oh, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I just wanted to interject about like sort of the the impact to sort of the ingredient substitution thing. Um, the other thing too is, I mean, it's wonderful to cook out of a book um, directly. But also, some people, including myself, use cookbooks differently. Like you're not always trying to actually make the recipe in the book. Sometimes you're trying to go somewhere in your mind. Like, I read book cookbooks just to read them. Um, I love the headers. I love the ingredients. And I'm always looking in those so-called bad books for that one, that, that one person who just sort of told the truth. And that's what I look for in cookbooks is truth. And so, like, you know, the one with where the cottage cheese is really called, like, you know, queso fresco or cotija or whatever it is. 
because then you can trust the whole book, even if you're like, don't want to make every single recipe. And so I want people to look at our book, read it, maybe to go somewhere in their mind, maybe to go to the Basque country to actually visualize the landscape there. Travel when you can't travel. Sometimes it's like, yeah, I live in, in, I can't remember which place you, uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan, but you want to just go to the Basque country in your mind for a day. And it doesn't always require you to actually produce the recipe. Sometimes you just want to read it. Like books are beautiful for a million reasons. And, um, and, and at least that's my, my relationship with books. And I just want people to like read our book and see some truth and maybe escape a little bit too like it's not just the function of having the recipe in front of you but the whole ball wax it is amazing how many people just sit down and read cookbooks it's amazing with no intention of cooking out of them but a lot of times i'll just read the header and i won't read the recipe well and also well by the same token i think a lot of chefs buy cookbooks for the for the visuals they'll get a, a little like a pinch of an idea from a picture of a dish. Right. Or um, you're, even the words in the header, like, this is how I came up with this. And you're like, oh, yeah, hold on, wait exactly. a minute. Exactly. And then you take it, you know, your imagination takes over. Right. It's just I think. This, it's a, somebody else's story can lead to you expressing yourself differently and finding freedom. Absolutely. And I think um, that's the joy in, 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 in a cookbook when it's even like sort of more than the sum of its parts, so to speak. Yeah, we're down to just our last couple of minutes, but I'd just love to ask one last question um, and ask for sort of a you know minute or so answer. Um, but for you know again for anybody who's listening who's maybe thinking about doing a cookbook, uh, you know Sarah, if I said to you you know if there's one thing you wish you'd known at the outset of doing a book that you know you realized at the end of the process, um, what do you think you might say that was? Um. Well, my first book, the publisher paid for the photography, and my second book, I paid for it. So you got to control it the second time. I got to control it, um, but I also didn't really realize how much it was going to cost. So that was kind of interesting. So you preferred it the first way? That's hard to say because I had no control. And there's a really weird thing in food world where chefs are never welcome uh, to make the food that's getting photographed. I mean, I've had this, you know, magazine pieces where they do it all in a studio somewhere, and you look at it afterwards, you think, well, that's not really my food. Right. It's a very odd uh, formula, standard. Yeah. Um, and I get it. Who wants a chef hovering over the food stylist going, no, 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 no. Right. Um, slowing everything down. But it's a, it's a weird thing. Yeah. Because it's your book. <laughs> right. <laughs> Interesting, Alex. What about you? You just you're just coming out of this. You haven't even really gone through the whole kind of marketing and promotion piece yet. But in terms of the process of writing, editing, just creating the book, what's the big thing you'd wish you'd known going in? I don't think that it was so much things that I I wished that I'd known. I think um, uh, it was it kind of goes back to that like you know what you should fight for and what you shouldn't fight for and I think if you can without first of all I think you should definitely pick um, a publisher who's published because everything changes we've been talking a lot about how um, everything sort of has a, a moment in time and styles change pick some pick a publisher that has a style that you're down with and right. like that, so that you're sort of in agreement from the very beginning I think is a really good way to do it um, and um, I think if you have an aggressive agent, that's a really good idea. Um, and uh, and I think if you can, like the things, figure out the things that you care about, things you didn't realize would be such a struggle, and make sure that those are um, that you make room for those in your contract. Like whatever those priorities are for you, whether it's like you want final approval on the cover or um, just. Whatever, whatever those things are that that are really meaningful to you, um, that you think somebody else might not get, you know, right. like oh, I really want, you know, the recipes to be in the Basque language, yeah, or you know, th- those are things that people are going to fight you on because they're trying to create um, the most accessible book, and you're trying to create something very particular and and special. So if you have things that you feel strongly about, like I would carve them out. In, up front. Yeah, and then fight about them in the contract as opposed to like in the editing process. Which is going to be when a year you're later. So exhausted. Right. 
Right. And it's also like, going to be a year later. I mean, yeah. people may forget conversations at that point. And, and you lose some of your fire. You're not as upset. Well, yeah, and also but and, and be and be flexible because it is just like in the kitchen. Everything is a compromise kind of. We yeah. compromise all the time. It is funny. I would add to what you're saying. You know, it's, it is amazing. You know, very often if you're trying to sell a book and, and you don't have multiple houses that are interested. I mean, it's not at all uncommon for an editor to buy a book not having met the chef or the author. That happens all the time. And I, I personally would encourage you know anybody out there who is going to do a book who's lucky enough to have people interested to at least go for an office meeting and meet this person who's going to have you know, basically be your partner and basically have a lot of call on like, uh, on, you know, call the shots ultimately if when push comes to shove. Uh, the other thing I would suggest to people is to share a chapter uh, along the way. So if there's any sort of a disconnect, you find that out um, after one chapter instead of after writing, you know, three, four, five hundred words. That would be my thought on it. <laughs> I, th- um, I think if you're a new cookbook writer, they demand the chapter. You oh, have to yeah. like write a proposal and stuff. I mean, if you're really famous, like they might be like, oh, you don't even need to write a proposal. Like, well, I we have should a- all be so lucky. Right. I have a famous friend who is just like, well, you know, when's your thing due? And I was like, oh, you know, the first she said something like the first chapter is due in September. And I mean, and I was like, you mean your proposal is due in September? Right. <laughs> like they'd, she'd already sold two books sure. to the publisher. Right. Right. Over a coffee. Um, <laughs> with that. Um, we'd like to thank our guests, uh, Sarah Jenkins and Alex Raj. Uh, just a couple of quick notes. If you'd like to follow us, we are on Twitter at, at Chef Podcast. Uh, we're also on Facebook. Our page is The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew. You can like us there and keep up with our guests and our shows. Uh, and please, if you're giving uh, a listen on iTunes, feel free to throw us a review. Um, somebody did that last week and compared my asking for reviews to... Um, to uh, Jeb Bush uh, saying please clap at that press conference but I'm asking for reviews we want enough reviews to have an average review Um, anyway uh, oh I'm sorry and also I will be moderating uh, a chef's power hour which is being put on by the chef's collaborative it is a phone in uh, discussion that you can phone into and listen to we're going to be talking about health in the kitchen and uh, several different interpretations of that term uh, Saru uh, Jayaraman will be speaking uh, Evan Hanskor of Egg Restaurant in Brooklyn and Kat Kinsman who was on our second show Jimmy who created the Chefs with Issues program earlier this year that takes place this coming Tuesday March 8th at 1pm Eastern Standard Time to find out how to sign up and call in go to chefscollaborative.org Navigate over to the programs page and then to Chef Power Hour link, and you can get information on that. And with that, uh, we'll see you back here next week. I'm Andrew Friedman. I'm Jimmy Bradley. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.